of Jonah. It's in the Old Testament. And as we get ready to dive into God's word this morning, I, I, I know you probably noticed that there's a critical absence in our leadership team this morning as uh, Pastor Daniel is away backpacking and uh, enjoying nature. As Molly says, he absolutely loves nature. Just kidding. He doesn't love nature. But I'm trusting that he's having a great time with the kids and with Lee as they are in Isle Royal. Isle Royal. So maybe someday I'll get to experience uh, Isle Royal. So you guys, because the varsity is gone, you get stuck with the junior varsity today. And uh, I hope that as we open God's word, we will be encouraged, our hearts will be nourished. We're going to be doing a couple of things here in the month of August. I mean, obviously, we're doing our, our regular series on uh, Church Covenant, but we're also going to take uh, two weeks here in the month of August to tackle the book of Jonah. So this morning, we're going to be hitting part one, and we're going to hit part two towards the end of the month. So uh, I just want you to understand that we're not going to finish the story today. That'd be an incredibly long message, and I'm sure you guys all have amazing dinners waiting for you when you get home today. But we're going to be in Jonah chapter 1 here this morning. And as we open up the word, let's let's start with just giving this time to the Lord, asking him to work in our hearts, to convict us, to draw us uh, to himself. Let's pray. Father, we're so grateful um, to be called your children. We're delighted, God, to have uh, the opportunity to um, open up your word this morning. And we pray, God, that as you've asked me to be a vessel for your grace, mercy to your people, God, that you would be faithful um, to, to minister through your spirit to each and every person here. God, we recognize that there is no power in my empty words apart from the power and work of your spirit to energize those words of hearts that are different than what I believe. We pray, God, that as we open your truth this morning, that you'd minister in a way that's unique and fresh, that you'd perhaps revive souls that are malnourished this week, that you would use your words to draw people that are far from you to yourself, God, that you would perhaps give new faith to some this morning. And for those of us, God, who have been saved for years, God, I pray that you would use your words this morning to convict us of those areas, perhaps, that we have allowed to grow dormant. Those ways in which we've drifted from you. Those subtle ways in which we've replaced the joy of knowing you with the counterfeit pleasures of this earth. And so, God, we pray that as we open your text, that your word would speak and that it would come forth with power. We'll give you all the honor and glory for everything you do in us and through us. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray these things and for his glory. Amen. I was approached last week by a new believer at faith, and perhaps you've met him, perhaps you haven't. But for the sake of not causing embarrassment, as, as I share a bit of his story, he's asked that I keep his name concealed. So for the duration of our time here this morning, I'm going to refer to him as Carl. And what a story it was. You know, Carl had come to saving faith through an outreach event, and he immediately desired 
to get plugged in. You know, there was a real fire in his eyes. There was a burning passion as he came to faith. And as he described the transformation that had taken, in, taken place in his heart, it was dramatic. It was powerful. And as we shared a cup of coffee, he said to me, Mike, you know what? It felt like for years I was operating like an old chainsaw cutting through fallen timber with a dull blade. You ever used a dull chainsaw before? You know what's funny? I used a chainsaw, and I thought that I put a new chain on, and I thought it was going to cut well, and it cut poorly. And it wasn't because the chain was dull. It was because I was an idiot and put it on backwards. Apparently, that makes a difference. But, you know, Carl said he felt like he'd been like this old chainsaw. Life was a grind for him. He was struggling. Perhaps you know the feeling at the end of yourself, broken, desperate, dire, said, but God, but God, who is rich in mercy, we read that text this morning, in a moment of gracious intervention, God stepped in and transformed his empty life and gave him saving faith. And as Carl described it, he said it was though the scales fell off of his eyes. And for the first time in his life, the first time ever he could clearly see. in his eyes, he expressed his immense gratitude that God would save somebody like him, that God would think highly of his glory to the point that he would resurrect a dead soul such as Carl's was and still is a marvel to him. You know, in the weeks that followed Carl's conversion, he sat in the Sunday morning study just like you. He heard the same truths. He, he sang the same songs. He attended the same Bible studies. And as he expressed to me, he began to feel this, this deep and inescapable sense that his life as a new believer needed to count for something. As we sat there together, we talked about how, how being a follower of Jesus doesn't simply mean that you've been saved from God's eternal wrath. I mean, that is part of it. But I said to him, Carl, you've been called to live and to lead an abundant life. I shared with Carl how that God has given each of us a mission. And that mission is so simple, right? To serve, to love, and to lead people into a growing relationship with Jesus Christ. With tears now pouring down Carl's face, he shared with me how coming out of this recent study had impacted him, and he was beginning to feel this nudge from the Holy Spirit to share Jesus with his neighbor. That's a pretty cool thing, right? My reaction was ecstatic. Carl, that's fantastic. This is amazing. That's exactly what we want to see. You know, your, your heart is filled with Jesus to the point that you're ready to go to the masses to declare his grace and his goodness to the far reaches of the world, starting with your neighbor. His response, however, to me was disheartening as he replied, you don't mean our neighbor, do you? Obnoxious, raging alcoholic, verbally abusive to his friends and family, hostile even to the smallest inconvenience. Perhaps you know the type. Carl went on to say that in light of their recent history, Sharing Jesus with him seemed like a pretty tall order. 
After a few painful moments of silence, I went on to share with Carl my intense hatred for rats. Maybe you have hatred for rats. Anybody out there? Or am I alone in that? You know, it doesn't matter if they're domestic, domesticated. It doesn't matter if they're pets. I hate rats. I said to him, this is not, this is not just a casual hatred for rats. This is a white-knuckle, paralyzed, irrational, fearful hatred for rats. There's no other words to describe it. When, it, when I see a rat, I mean, it, it freaks me out, and I cannot explain it. Maybe it's the way they look, I said to Carl. Long, skinny, worm-like tail, beady little eyes, greasy hair, bony little arms. Are you creeped out yet? Razor-sharp teeth, or perhaps it's the diseases that they carry. I'll, I'll never know. But you know what? I was confronted with this fear, as I shared with Carl. I was confronted with this fear about 14 years ago when I was working at HSBC, and I received a call from my wife at work. Have you ever gotten calls from your wife when you're at work? You know something must be wrong, right? I could hear it in her voice. And she said, uh, Mike, we have a problem. We have a rat in the house. My heart sank. Spiders I can handle, snakes handled them before, not my favorite, but rats. This was an entirely different story altogether. How big is it, I asked. Are you sure it's not a mouse? She reported to me in that moment that not only was she sure that it was not a mouse, but that its body was the size of a full-grown squirrel. It entered in through our crawl space. It climbed out from underneath one of our kitchen cabinets, and it scurried across the floor while she was making dinner. I didn't know what to do, but I knew I wanted him dead, right? That's, that's my thought. I felt a little bit like Ethan Hunt of Mission Impossible, and I, could hear the, I can hear the music and the, and the words in my head right now, your mission, Mike, should you choose to accept it. I'd love to be able to say that the story ended with a heroic rescue of my beautiful bride from the arms of this furry little intruder. But that would not be true to the events of that day. I swung by Lowe's on my way home, and I, I purchased this blue trap. You hear about these things, right? A friend of mine, an exterminator friend, said, Mike, this is what you got to do. Go get that blue trap. Put a dollop of peanut butter right smack dab in the middle. And you're guaranteed to catch a rat. You know what? It all sounds great to me in the moment. But I failed to connect with one critical truth. Once you catch the rat, then you have to kill it. I don't want to kill a rat. But I did what he said, okay? So I hadn't thought about it that far. I, I got the glue trap. I put the peanut butter in there. And I set it right in the middle of my kitchen floor. And I'm looking at that thing, and I'm saying, how in the world could a rat refuse that? Shoot, I was even tempted, right? My wife wakes up the next morning. I'm stuck to the glue trap. But I set it there, and I, I, I went into the living room. My wife went to bed, and all of a sudden, the silence of the night was broken. After she went to sleep, it was broken by a womp, 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 womp. Excitement welled up inside me as I realized I caught the rat. My trap worked. Yet my joy was almost immediately eclipsed by the sheer terror of that moment as I realized, fearfully, that my trap worked. I caught the rat, and now he's alive in my house. 
I stood there in the entryway to my kitchen, gazing at my fallen foe. And I'm thinking to myself, I know what I need to do. I need to muster the courage, walk over the thwomping rat, grab my shovel, and take care of business. My mission was clear. However, in spite of what I knew, my hatred for rats fueled an irrational fear that kept me from doing the one thing that I needed to do, and that's kill the rat. I went on to share with Carl that I had a mission in that moment. It was a violent mission, but it was a mission nonetheless. And as a believer, Carl, you too have a mission to declare Jesus where he is not known. This is not an easy mission. In fact, many throughout history, heeding this mission oftentimes led to difficulty and even death, hardship, and persecution. Furthermore, just as hatred and hatred fueled my reluctance to fulfill my mission with the rat, all too often those same emotions keep me from living a life fully devoted to Christ. The truth of 2 Corinthians 4, 1 came to my mind in that moment. And it read very simply, Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. I shared with Carl that this phrase, do not lose heart, carries with it a military implication as we think about what this means. Essentially, Paul is saying, in the face of adversity, don't cower in fear. When the enemy is pressing in, don't give up. When you feel like you have nothing, to, nothing left to give, nothing left to spend, Carl, don't quit. Well, God has called you to take the gospel light into the darkness. And, he, and he's mercifully granted you this amazing calling. Brother, do not lose heart. Carl paused, swallowed deeply, and he nodded in acknowledgement. You know, I shared with Carl in that moment that his situation reminded me of a man in Scripture whose name was Jonah. I explained to him that this story of Jonah was likely set during the reign of Jeroboam II, which puts it somewhere between 793 and 753 B.C. Jonah was a prophet to the northern tribes of Israel just prior to the ministry of Amos. And as a kingdom, Israel had enjoyed a time of relative peace and prosperity. Both Syria and Assyria were relatively quiet at that time, allowing Jeroboam and the nation of Israel to enlarge its borders. Yet in spite of of her apparent physical success, spiritually, Israel's heart was in a very dark and destitute place. Ritualism and idolatry replaced a genuine love for the Lord, and Israel's heart drift, drifted farther and farther and farther away from Almighty God. Well, being a prophet was undoubtedly difficult at any time throughout Israel's history. Preaching a message that no one wants to hear would be enough to wear even the strongest man down. And Jonah was no exception. So when the word of the Lord came to Jonah in chapter 1, verse 2, and he says, Arise, Jonah, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. There's no wonder in my mind, there's no wonder why Jonah responded the way he did in verse 2. I mean, I can imagine Jonah having these arguments with God. God, I've been your faithful spokesperson now in Israel for for many years. And that's been bad enough, God. 
You gave me a job that stinks. Now you want me to go to Nineveh? Are you crazy, God? God, how, how can you possibly be calling me to this? Do you know anything about Nineveh, God? Have you been paying attention to current events? Have you been watching the news, God? God, you're, are you trying to get me killed? This is not what I signed up for. You see, Nineveh had earned quite a reputation at that time. Its armies were known far and wide for their extreme brutality. Powerful bows, battering rams, newly invented weapons of terror and mass destruction. And if that weren't enough, they gained a gruesome reputation for the mutilation of their enemies. Imagine that, skinning, stabbing, beheading, impaling, limbs removed, eyes gouged out. And the nation as a whole was celebrating these atrocities among the nation. They thrived on it. Their kings bragged about them. So when God said, go to Nineveh, I imagine that Jonah's heart shook within him, as this was an incredibly challenging task, to say the least. Fear fueled his response. Reluctance. Carl gazed unflinchingly at the text. It seemed as though time had stopped while he pondered this sobering reality. And as he connected with the truth that he too was just crippled by this same fear, paralyzed, I could see his heart beginning to melt as he began to realize that the call to follow Jesus is not an easy one. That's not what we signed up for. We didn't sign up for an easy task. In fact, brothers and sisters, I would venture to say that we're not so different than Jonah here either. The times are no less hostile. ISIS cripples many in sheer terror. Aggressive recruitment strategy, worldwide recruitment strategy. It seems like they're everywhere. Their disregard for human life, looting, plundering, destroying, their extreme brutality, their tech savvy, and their goal to usher in the end of the world. When we think about the world in which we live, there is, there is an, an idea and an element of, 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 of fear that grips everybody. And my tendency in the midst of all of this, brothers and sisters, if I'm being completely honest with you, as I was with Paul, to draw in cower in fear, and to insulate myself in fear and Fear fuels my reluctance. It keeps me from loving God's mission. Yet, what is God's challenge to us in the face of such fear? Matthew 28, 19. Go, make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. As I relayed to Carl my own reluctance. I could tell that he was intrigued and by, by this fascinating Old Testament account. And he asked, you know, what was Jonah's response, Mike, when God said go? I went on to share, verse 3 records, but Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa, and he found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare. He went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. Jonah ran. He went in the opposite direction. He fled to Tarshish. And I could see that Carl was puzzled by this. How, how could Jonah possibly think that he could escape from the very presence of God and flee from what God had called him to do? This was foolishness. 
Nevertheless, Jonah paid his fare, and he sunk down into the belly of the ship to enjoy a restful trip, fleeing from the hand of Almighty God. The story picks up in verse 4. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea. There was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. The mariners were afraid. Each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten the load. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship, and he had lain down to rest and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give us a thought that we may not perish. Now I can imagine the sheer pandemonium of this desperate scene. As God stepped in with a magnificent display of his sovereign might, the crew is freaking out. They feared for their very lives, recognizing that their peril was clearly beyond the moral realm, mortal realm. They foolishly cried out to their gods for salvation, but to no avail. After exhausting all other options, they remembered Jonah fast asleep in the belly of the ship. With everyone else in a state of sheer panic, this was odd to the captain, so much, in fact, that he goes down into that belly of the ship and he confronts Jonah. What are you doing, Jonah? We're in real peril here. We're dying, man. Get off your butt and help us figure out this problem or we are all going to perish, right? After some discussion, they decided to cast lots to see on whose account this evil had befallen. Verse 7, as God sovereignly guided this ancient method for determining his will, the lot fell to Jonah. Imagine this scene, waves crashing, storms raging, and all eyes were transfixed on this strange little man. Who are you, Captain Jonah? What's your occupation? Why are you here? Jonah's response is found in verse 9, and he said to them, I'm a Hebrew. I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and dry land. Terror gripped the hearts of these mariners. What is this thing that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the almighty God of heaven. Because he had told them. He went on to record in verse 11. Then he said to them, what shall we do that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, pick me up, throw me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it's because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land. I imagine they're thinking to themselves, there's got to be another way. He wants us to toss him into the sea. There's got to be another way. So they're rowing hard. And the harder they row, the more exhausted they get. Therefore, they called out to the Lord and said, Oh, Lord, let us not perish for this man's life. Lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah, they hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. Imagine what must have been running through Jonah's mind as he sank deeper and deeper into the icy depths of the sea. How foolish I had been to As daunting of a task as going to Nineveh seemed at the time, God never asked him for results. 
God didn't say go to Nineveh and transform their hearts. No, that's my work, right? God only desired obedience. Now, I could see on Carl's face as I'm talking through the chilling details of this epic account in Scripture, and for the very first time, a deep and sobering realization as to the power of Almighty God. Carl, I said, the only thing that God requires of you is obedience. Carl didn't say anything. He didn't have to. His silence said it all. I could see that he was deeply troubled at the events in this story. So I assured him that it doesn't end here, Carl. God is not done with Jonah. Verse 17 records, And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. Carl's eyes radiated with astonishment. Kids, can you imagine? What do you do in the belly of a great fish? Man, you're probably not going to break out a deck of cards and ask for skill. You're just going to have time to think, right? Because it's pretty tight and stinky. For Jonah, God used this time to strategically realign Jonah's priorities, to reorient his way of thinking. So much, in fact, that Jonah cries out to God in chapter 2. And Jonah records this. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord, his God, from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas. Floods surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounds me. Weeds were wrapped around my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. My prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. I absolutely love this prayer, church family, as this is the precious prayer of a, of a seemingly broken man who was rescued from the icy depths through through unlikely means. And this, in this prayer, Jonah acknowledges several key truths about God as it relates to his character and the way that he operates in this world. First of all, we see that he's a God who hears. Out of the belly of Sheol, I cried, and you heard my voice. God, I was at the brink of death. And I cried out to you, and God, you hear. You know, when I mess up my life and I find myself at that very bitter end, remember, church family, that it is never too late to cry out to God. We can be thankful that we serve a God who hears and delights in the prayers of his children. Jonah was desperate. He cried out to God, and God heard him. But not only that, he's the God who judges justly. He said, you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the sea, verse 3. He does whatever it takes to get the attention of his children. He's absolutely committed to your growth as a follower of Jesus. He loves you. Furthermore, he demonstrates his love 
for you to discipline. See, brothers and sisters, we're just so distracted with the things of this world, don't we? For some, it may be career. And those passions crowd out our love for God and our pursuit of his mission. For some, it's ambition. For some, it's money. For some, we get distracted even by things that we would say are good, but, but we, we, we forget their rightful place, and we put them ahead of our pursuit of God, whether it be family, whether it be our kids. Fill in the blank. You know, how does God get our attention? Well, many times he gets our attention by taking away those things that have replaced our affection. loves you. And how does he show that love? He does it through He disciplines you. Not only that, not only does he judge justly, but despite the darkness of discipline, the pain that comes through God's chastening hand, he gives hope, Jonah says. He gives hope, yet I shall again look on your holy temple, verse 2. There is hope for the wayward heart. Jonah acknowledged that. It's not too late, brothers and sisters, to make a change. God wants your heart. But not only is he the God of hope, he's a God who rescues. You brought up my life from the pit, verse set, verse 6. He's the God who reminds us, I remembered the Lord and my prayer came to you. God was faithful to minister to Jonah's heart, drawing him back to truth. Not only that, he's the God of hope. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. Verse 8, Jonah had been enamored with the vain idols of his own comfort and his own security. And it took God's faithful chastening hand to strip away Jonah's security so that he could once again see and experience the joy of living in the midst of God's steadfast. Jonah prays, what I have vowed that I will pay, verse 9. And lastly, he's the God who saves. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And I could see on Carl's face, as I'm reading this beautiful prayer, there was a genuinely broken spirit. So much, in fact, that I asked Carl, Carl, what is it that the Lord requires of you? His response was priceless. With tears streaming down his face, Paul cried, absolute obedience. I acknowledged and assured him that God desires this of all of us. But Mike, he said, what do I do with this crippling fear? I'm terrified at the thought of stepping out into that awkward space to declare Jesus where he is not known. Mike, there are, there, there are a great many things in life that I'm afraid of that I can get over. But this is one of those things, Mike, that that I just can't push past. What do I do with this fear? I went on to encourage Carl with, that while fears certainly fuel our reluctance, God is faithful to remind us the truth of Matthew 28, 29. I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Think about that for a second. Brothers and sisters, there is no mission too large that God would ever call you to 
that he is not willing to go with you into that dark space that you say Jesus is coming to. Think about that. I am with you always. Remember as a kid, I was freaked out about a lot of things. But if dad was with me, it was going to be okay, right? I don't want to go in the basement by myself. That furnace is a scary thing. It makes noises, dad. It's going to come out and get me, dad. I'll go down with you. Okay, I'm good. And God is saying, I'm with you. you to walk across the street to share Jesus with your neighbor. Fear not. When I ask you to testify of my immense worth to your co-workers, fear not. When I nudge you to pay for a stranger's cup of coffee when you're at Starbucks or whatever coffee shop you like to go to, fear not. When I'm asking you to be a bold witness for me in the public school system, fear not. But Mike, I could lose my job. Fear not. God has called us to go and he's promised to be with us. Come hard after that mission. When I urge you to reach out to an estranged family member whose heart is far from me, fear not. I assured Carl in that moment that we all have Ninevehs, that God has been faithful to call us to. You're not alone in this daily burden. The question is, will we allow our fears to cripple us, or will we respond in obedience and courage, recognizing that the mission of God far outweighs our fear of persecution? Jonah seemed to recognize this as he soaked in the digestive juices of that great fish. And the good news for Jonah is that God was about to give him a second chance. God heard his plea for salvation. God spoke to the fish. And in verse 10, the fish vomited Jonah out on dry land. Carl seemed to be relieved as the fate of our reluctant friend appeared to be, at least for the time being, a bit more promising. I could see in his eyes, though, still a sense of questioning. So much, in fact, that I acquired, inquired as to the nature. Carl responded to me, Mike, you know what? This sounds great, Mike. And I understand everything you're saying here. I, I'm relatively new to this kind of radically committed faith. And I'm just starting to really get connected to your whole thing. Can I ask you a question? So I certainly will. You can ask me anything. He asked me this. Are the people of faith obeying God's promptings with this same sense of urgency? You know those moments when you feel that myself asking that very question right now. Am I obeying God's promptings with the same sense of urgency? What an insightful question. In that moment, I sat there motionless, paralyzed, unsure how to answer. But let me ask you, church family, how does this truth resonate with you this morning? Where is your Nineveh? What is God prompting you to do as it relates to his Mission And more importantly, are, are you obeying God's call? Do you respond? Perhaps for you, you're wrestling over God's call as it relates to your fellow students. And that was a battle for me as a new dad about eight, nine years ago, eight years ago with my son. God nudged me and said, Mike, I want you to invest in the public school system. I want you to trust me. 
I want you to step out in faith. God, this is a place that's dark. They don't know you, God. That's what I want you to bless. I want you to minister, and I want you to engage with this family. And I want you to declare me where I am not known. I want you to step out into that space. And it was scary. It was absolutely terrifying. Maybe that's your struggle this morning. And I know that that's not a decision for everybody. But maybe that's where God is nudging you. Perhaps you're wrestling over God's call to your neighbors. And maybe God is saying, you know what, it's, it's time. I want you to walk across the street. And I want you to introduce yourself. And I want you to build a relationship for the purpose of bringing Jesus to a dark place. And maybe you're saying to yourself, Mike, I've lived there for 20 years. I don't know their names. It's awkward. You know what? It's time to embrace the awkward, brothers and sisters. It's time to step out into that space and say, you know what? I, I feel really bad. I've lived here for a long time. I've never gotten to know you. My name is Mike. What's your name? Bridge that distance. Build into their lives for the sake of seeing Jesus come to be known in that dark space. Perhaps you're wrestling over God's call to get involved in serving the needy in a difficult area. Like Flint. Man, you want to talk about a needy area. You know, I, I had a conversation with a lady the other day and it broke my heart. She said, Mike, I feel like I'm waiting for God. I feel like I'm just waiting for God. I'm paying for water that I can't use, can't afford it. Struggling to buy bottled water. I can't sell my house. Nobody wants it. It's old. It's run down. And I feel like I've lost all hope and all purpose. And you know what? In those moments of desperation, what does God desire? To bring in that, to bring that light into those dark spaces and to say, you know what? You're struggling. I get it can imagine the situation you're going through, but let me point you to somebody who desires to give you hope and your peace and your comfort, somebody who desires to give you a purpose so far beyond anything you can imagine. Let me point you to the well that never runs dry. Let me point you to the living water that will give you life. Maybe God's nudging you in that. Maybe God's nudging you for a difficult area, a needy area, maybe a crime-ridden area, and God desires to see you go and make disciples, trusting that he's going to go with you. Perhaps you're wrestling over God's call to engage the marginalized with the gospel. Kids, listen to me here for a minute. There's a lot of bullying in this world, right? There's a lot of focus on on people that don't look and function and act the same way as you. Those kids get alienated. Adults do this too. And what would God have? Well, God would have us to go for the clumsy, go to the awkward, go to the marginalized, go to those who are struggling. Why? That we can point them to the hope that they can find in Jesus. Perhaps you're sitting here this morning and you say, you know what, I'm not feeling that nudge, but Mike, you know what? This way of thinking is completely new to me. You're saying, I'm with Nineveh right now, Mike. I'm lost. I'm apart, with, apart from God. You know what, friend? It's not too late. And just as God is calling us as believers to 
pursue this mission. Maybe God is inviting you now in this moment to embrace faith in a way that's authentic and different from anything you've ever experienced before. Maybe for you, God is saying, come, come, embrace me as your Lord and Savior. And if that's you this morning, I pray that you take an opportunity to connect with me. Come and see Sharon. I'd love to talk with you. My point in saying all of that is this, church family, there's a lot of Nineveh is all around us. In fact, every day, people are dying without Jesus and going on into a Christless world. And if we believe that this is true, okay, and I'm gonna I'm gonna take this one. I mean, if we really believe that this is true, everything would change. I mean, we're not we're, we're not just talking about a. This is a nice to have. This is an add-on. You know, your life is messy, so bring Jesus into the picture, and he makes everything great. No, this is so radically transformative. This is God plucking you from the domain of darkness and transferring you into the kingdom of his beloved son. You have a choice. Do you want to be an enemy of the Father, or do you want to be part of his family? That is the message, right, that, that God has called us to take to the masses. That is what he wants us to engage in. Brothers and sisters, if we really believe that this is true, everything in our lives would change. Our priorities would change. Our time spent would change. Our focus would change to the point that Faith Church of Linden could not shut up about the gospel of Jesus Christ. We would truly become a city in heaven that's shining brightly for the world to see. Nineveh's all around us. People are dying without Jesus. Our calling is simple. Go, leave the comforts, leave the comfort zones of this world, and be the church to a world that doesn't know Jesus. And be it in community. We're not just talking about covenant. We're talking about gospel relationships within this body, do it in community with one another. So maybe you're on the awkward end of that spectrum. Maybe this whole gospel conversation stuff doesn't come easy for you. But guess what? There's others out there that think the same as you. Link arms and say, let's do it together. Let's take the battle to the teeth of the enemy together. Let's, let's engage the lost of the gospel of Jesus Christ together. Let's do it in community with one another. How are we doing this together? Are we engaging the lost? Or are we cowering in fear? Let's pray. Father, we're so grateful for all that you've done and all that you've made. And God, the, the, the difficulty with messages like this, God, is sometimes it can feel like we're getting browbeaten. But the reality, God, is you are calling live a life that's so much more intentional and purposeful than we choose for ourselves to live. I pray, God, that for those who are already running hard after you and making Jesus known to those who don't know him, God, I pray that you would use a message like this to encourage them, to spur them on to continue to do great things for you. 
living out their faith in a real, genuine way. I pray, God, that you do that in our hearts, that you awaken our hearts to the reality of the gospel. And Lord, for those that are far from you, I pray that you would use this message and this text to draw them to faith in Christ today, to bring them into this glorious world and this abundant life to see your best in our lives. I pray that as we go forward today in this place, that we would go forward 